I watched an autopsy when I was 13. I saw interrogations. I went on ride-alongs. I mean, I knew everything. I lived Law and Order and Chicago PD and NCIS. Like, that was my whole life. Three weeks before I graduated high school, and I had my police academy date was a few months away. Three weeks before I graduated high school, my father was killed in the line of duty in a plane crash. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by ASTOTS Academy, which offers online courses that help investors, aspiring professionals, business leaders, and even beginners to improve the finances of their lives and their businesses. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your discount on the course that excites you the most. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest, Scott Eddie. Scott, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. <laughs> Let me introduce you to the audience. After 10 years in investment banking, Scott moved overseas and lived in Europe and Asia for 17 years. While living in beautiful Bangkok, he started the first digital agency in Southeast Asia, and it remained the biggest one in the region for five years. After selling the agency and spending some time in Europe while building his personal brand, he now travels full-time while building social media strategies, speaking at conferences, creating video marketing packages, and consulting for the world of luxury travel. He's also the TV host for the new travel series on Lifetime Television called the Video Globetrotter. And I first found Scott years ago on Twitter. Right now, he's got more than 600,000 followers on Twitter. And I'm so happy to be able to bring you to the audience. Scott, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, so, you know, you, you pretty much covered it. You know, I grew up in South Florida and... I went into investment banking training program right after high school. And I, I didn't, I went in there on advice of a friend and I didn't know anything about selling, about finance. I was bad at math. It was all, all arrows were pointed the wrong direction, but I did it anyway. And it was the best decision I ever made because I learned that one skill that you need, no matter what industry you're in and that's sales. And obviously, being a stockbroker, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, it was a very aggressive sale, lots of cold calling. And in my opinion, that's the best way to learn sales. So I did it for 10 years. And then they sold the firm all of a sudden. And my friend's friend was an expat living in Bangkok. And he says, listen, you're 29. You've never been to Europe. You've never been to Asia. What's wrong with you? Hop on a plane and come over. So I bought a two-week ticket, and after four days, and Andrew, you'll attest to this, after four days, I completely was in love with Thailand, Southeast Asia, the warmness of the people. I just completely fell in love with the culture, and I called my mom. I said, I'm never coming home. Send all my stuff. And I lived in Bangkok for 11 years. You know, for me, it was heaven. Yeah. And I, I know that feeling, because I know when I first came in 1989, it was just a booming place. I think for a lot of young people, they ask, ask us, you know, why do you come at that time? And they don't realize that Thailand was one of the fastest growing economies in the world. 
And so Absolutely. It, was, it was, it was just booming. So it was so exciting. But I think the other part that you mentioned is like the warmth of the people is what really makes yeah. it fantastic. And yeah, it rubs off on you. It's fantastic. It really is. Yeah. I would say that when I go back to the U S I haven't been back to the U S in about four years, but when I go back to the U S it's so harsh. People are so strong and confident and rude sometimes and, and loud and, and all those things that I never noticed when I, you know, was living there, but when you step out and then you're socialized, I've lived now longer in Thailand than I lived in the U S. So I have this, you know, a, a level of socialization that happens here. And then you go back and you realize what have I become? But, but I used to be that, but now I become this and yeah, it does really rub, yeah. rub off on you. And I'm sure even in your life now, there's so much that probably, you know, is influenced by that, such as one of the things in Thailand that I tell my American friends is that you really can't get angry. It just doesn't work here. It, right. it, it can end in death. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, yeah. is that Thailand kind of smooths your rough edges. Yeah. Yeah. I notice it, you know, typically in a non-pandemic year, I'm normally in a different country every week and I do 20, 25 countries a year, but I always do round trips from South Florida. I never do back-to-back trips. So every time I come back here, it's, I get that same feeling that, you know, I just think that my belief is like this. I think that everybody, once they finish high school, they should spend six months in a developing country, not first world, not London, not Singapore, not Australia, a developing country, and then come back to the US. And I think your whole life will be different. I think it should be mandatory. Yeah, because it changed my life. And I was 29. I can only imagine what would have happened if I came when I was 18. Yeah, so true. So true. And let me ask you to explain your your business model a little bit thinking about young people out there listening to this show that are thinking, wow, I want to do what you're doing or, you know, how would I, you know, try to become, I don't even know if you'd call it an influencer, but somebody that really is known and can build a business around that. What, tell us just a bit about how your business works and then what advice you'd give a young person nowadays in relation to that. Yeah. So, you know, when I started the agency, social media started, simultaneously at the same time. And I sort of built a huge audience. But the reason I built a huge audience was not because like, I didn't even know the word influencer wasn't even a work. I didn't know what I was building. I just, I'm really addicted to meeting new people all the time. So for me, my version of social media when I was growing up was to go out all the time, go out in the evenings and go to events and go to parties and I grew up in South Florida, so going to South Beach was big, big for us. And when I got to Bangkok, I, I went out and socialized all the time. When social media came around, it was like I saw a way that I could socialize 24 hours a day globally and make friends all over the place. So for me, that was like, wow, I could do what I do in real life, but like virtually, this is like amazing. So you know that when Twitter first came out, every expat in the world was on there. 
because that's how you got your news. That's how you talked to other expats. And that's how, you know, that's how the world went in the beginning. So Twitter was booming in the beginning, especially in Asia. So I really rode that wave and built up a huge audience. And then it just all steamrolled from there. You know, any new platform that opened up, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. It just all, you know, the spillover effect. And the audience, you know, followed. So you gained a big audience, okay? Now, today, the world is very noisy. Even though social media is still in its infancy stage. I mean, 12 years, 14 years, 12, 13 years, it's not a long time for our industry. So it's still in its infancy stage, even though some people think it's mature. It's a very noisy place. You know, now you're fighting against algorithms. You're fighting against building an audience. Everybody wants to do the same thing. You know, today you have to be very unique. You have to be very strategic. You have to be very niche. You know, double down in your niche. You can't be general. You know, how many food bloggers can Instagram take? How many travel influencers can Instagram take? You know, it's... You got to get very narrow. You know what I see a lot of people do today, and in my opinion, and again, there's exceptions to every rule, but in my opinion, I think that building a huge audience on one platform, if that platform ever changes, you're screwed. Like I see all these people. I know somebody who has a million followers on Instagram they don't have a website. They're not on Facebook. They're not on Twitter. They're not on TikTok. They're not on LinkedIn. Just Instagram. I mean, that's that's a fairly risky gamble, wouldn't you say? In fact, that used to be the like, advice, you know, focus on one and build it oh, out. But you're exactly you right. you got to be everywhere. Because what happens if Mark Zuckerberg changes everything with Instagram tomorrow? Then what? Yep. You know, it's it's just, it's very risky. So... You know, if I had to do it all over again, I would not build my brand the same way that I did. So now, let me just tell you where I am today. Now I have a huge audience and over all the platforms, I have about a million followers and I, my reach is somewhere around seven to eight million eyeballs a month. But what I do is I do a lot of influencer type campaigns, but number one, I'm getting paid a day rate when I do these trips, but I always negotiate and build my itinerary where I'm sitting down and having drinks or meeting with decision makers. If I'm going to a hotel, I'm making sure I meet the director of PR, the GM, the director of marketing. If I'm going to a destination, I make sure and meet the managing director of the tourism board, whoever the decision maker is, because I do so much more, provide so many more services than just my audience. My audience is what gets exposure, but I have, I build out digital strategies. I do consulting. I speak at different events. I, I run very high level Facebook ad campaigns. You know, there's, I provide all the services of a digital agency, but I just don't advertise it out front. It's, so uh, I let the audience pull in the eyeballs and then I take those eyeballs and convert them into long-term clients, I'm which thinking, has worked well until now. Yeah. I'm thinking about like the influencers that are sitting on the beach at a hotel, taking a picture of themselves in a right. bikini. Right. It doesn't, right. Um, it doesn't, right. it doesn't matter who the GM is or who this or right. that is, right. but this connects right. with what you described yourself as a social person. Yeah. 
So you're taking right. uh, an advantage that you have and something you'd like to do, the social aspect, and mixing it with that travel. Yeah, it's very fascinating. And so I'm getting two things from you. One is, mm-hmm. I don't want it to sound bad, but it's kind of spread yourself thin. And we always said, don't spread yourself too thin, but you do need to spread out through the different social media. And of course, you may find that one is you know, really suitable for you, fine. But if you don't have an email capture, if you don't have a way of Correct. keeping the, that audience, if they were to shut you down, then you know, you've got nothing. And then there's, the, there's one thing to stretch yep. yourself thin. There's another thing not to be everywhere. You still need to have a presence. Yep. And then the, the second thing that I take away from that is the idea that nowadays, particularly, you've got to be unique. As you said, the yeah. world's got plenty of food bloggers and cooks and this and that. So what is your angle? And it kind of goes to this podcast because when I wanted to go you know, make a podcast about finance, the most obvious mm-hmm. thing to do is interview financial people about their financial success. Right. And there's a lot of shows doing that and they're doing very well. And I thought to myself, sure. you know, how am I going to compete in that space? So I decided just to wait and keep thinking about it. And it was about three years ago, I sent out an email to, to my list of, of friends and, you know, colleagues as well as clients. And I asked them, would they be willing to share a story of their worst investment ever? And I received 500 written replies. Wow. And from those 500 written replies, I knew that this podcast has a place in the world where we can take the financial aspect, which is my area, but take the loss aspect, which is the guest area, and bring those two together into a story mm-hmm. and into mm-hmm. emotion. And by bringing all that together, you know, I've created a little niche. And that niche is, sure. you know, is fun. And that really brings us to the question, which is, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. So I'm going to share with you something that it's not necessarily an investment, but what I'm going to share with you is a tragedy. Okay. Take for it what you will. When I was growing up, I was born in Michigan. My father's whole family is from there. My father was born there. And my dad was a Michigan State Police. We moved to Fort Lauderdale when I was three. My dad became a Fort Lauderdale cop. My middle school and high school, every day after school, I spent in the police department because my life's plan was graduate high school, join the police academy, become a cop, get married, have kids, retire, and die. Like that was the life plan because that's what everybody on my dad's side did. For me, I was, I knew everything about being a cop by the time I entered high school. I took my driver's license test in a police car. I watched an autopsy when I was 13. I saw interrogations. I went on ride-alongs. I mean, I knew everything. I lived law and order and Chicago PD and NCIS. Like that was my whole life. Three weeks before I graduated high school, and I had my police academy date was a few months away. Three weeks before I graduated high school, my father was killed in the line of duty in a plane crash. And it turned my whole world upside down. 
And needless to say, that's why I didn't become a police officer. So the worst thing that could have ever happened to me in my life has already happened. So what I do in my life, and I do this every single day, is anytime something bad happens, anytime an ounce of negativity bounces in my head, anytime anything on a downward spiral is going on around me, I always think the worst thing that could ever happen to me in my life has already happened. Now there's zero downside. And that always bounces me back up. So for me, the worst thing that ever happened to me, my worst investment, if you will call it, has already happened. And that's how I deal with it psychologically. And that's how I deal with it every single day moving forward. And as you look back on this you know, situation, the story that you've talked right. about and the way you've handled it, what lessons did you learn from this you know, tragedy? I have one sister and she handled it one way. She still has a very hard time getting on planes. You know, it takes her three volume just to walk on the plank, so to speak. And, you know, she's nervous on planes. She, she can't even talk about it. She doesn't bring up my father's name, you know, like nothing. Or there's me. I want to fly as much as I can. I want to face that fear of flying. You know, I've even thought about taking private, you know, being a pilot, like taking lessons, flying a plane. You know, I want to really like punch it in the nose. So there's two ways you can handle things like this. You could stick your head in the sand and just say, oh, woe is me. And that's going to be it. And you're just crushed every time you think about it. And it affects you moving forward. Or you could stare it in the face and say, listen, I had a tremendous childhood. And I have memories that will last me a lifetime. And I'm going to make you proud every day. That's it. Yep. And I mean, I lost my father about four, four years ago. And he was 82 at the time. And in the morning, he made it. Yeah. In the morning, we were on the golf course in the, you know, in the uh, late morning, we were having coffee Mm -hmm. at Starbucks. We had lunch together. And then, we went home, I, he sat down in his chair and I went to take care of my mom who was at the rehabilitation for her stroke. And when I came home, he had had a massive hemorrhage and within about 12 or 14 days, he was, he was gone. And I realized you know, that I had everything of him that I couldn't ask for more. He was a great father, I had him all my life. He was a great husband for 59 years. And though it was sad and tragic, it was, it was not something that I felt was unfair or, you know, I, I felt that tragedy. But I can only imagine right. that you're at that age and already talking about the way you wanted to be a cop and it must have been how you looked up to him as we often do our fathers. But what's interesting is how you decided to use that experience because as you're telling us about it, I'm thinking about, aha, uh-huh, interesting, because you've built your reputation and your life around flying. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like you are not a guy that sits in an office in one place. No. So I think what I take away from your story is the idea that 
our tragedies, our mistakes. You know, sometimes it's a mistake. Sometimes it's just a simple tragedy. But the bad things that come into our life, if we can take them head on, it's going to allow us to grow from that experience. 100%. Yeah, it's a great, great lesson. And I think that for the listeners out there who haven't had tragedy in your life, be grateful for this day that you've gotten to this point without that tragedy, but know yeah. that it will come. And when it comes, I think Scott's given us some good perspective on you can you know, put your head in the sand or you can say, I'm not going to talk about that, or you can face it and take it on. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn in your life, what one action would you recommend our listeners take when they are faced with the same type of tragedy? Listen, seriously, I would say before you make any big decision, you're typically going to make that in a very emotional state. Take a step back, take an extra day, look at it from the outside looking in. If you have people you trust in your inner circle that have a level head, ask their opinion because looking from the outside in, you're always going to have a clearer head. Most of the time, people make bad decisions based on what they want short term. And every decision I make, I look at the five, 10-year results. How is this going to benefit me in a year, in five years, in 10 years? Not how is this going to be benefit me next week? You understand? Yep. So like put that's, things and that's how into perspective. Yeah, and that's not always easy. And that's why everybody isn't successful. So for the listeners out there, when you face that tragedy, it's easy to get caught up in yourself and in the moment and in the pain. But the lesson I take from this is, number one, put it in perspective. But one of the tools to put it in perspective is to look at it, as you said, from outside in, talk to people, get other perspectives and use that as a tool to move through the tragedy, but then think about the next five to 10 years. And just, it's great, great lesson. And we are all going to face our tragedies. So I love it. All right. Last yeah. question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? You know, I, I get this question a lot and it always shocks people to say that I don't really have a goal. And the reason for that is this, and having gone through this whole pandemic thing this year, this has really proven that my thinking was correct. My goal is to always think like a startup, always think like I'm a little mom and pop shop where there's one decision maker and I can make, I can change things overnight. So my, my sole goal is to make my personal brand continue to grow. That is really the only thing that matters to me because if that happens, then opportunities will arise from it. Now, thinking like a startup means when a pandemic happens and my whole life gets canceled, every retainer client drops me, travel ends overnight, all my speaking opportunities dry up, literally lost over $350,000 in revenue since March. But I was able to pivot overnight and 
generate new income streams and and think about how I can, you know, refresh my brand and come out bigger and better. And I'm relaunching the whole new Mr. Scott Eddie over the next couple of weeks, new website, new brand, new services, new everything. You know, it's just, it really allows you to stay on your toes and not be worried. If I had big, grand, huge goals and then the pandemic came, like they're all going to get annihilated. But if you just stay small, but look at the bigger picture, you're always ready for everything. Yeah. And if you built yourself in a kind of multidimensional way, rather than a one-dimensional is another aspect that I hear from you that allows you to make that transition. So that's great inspiration. All right, listeners. I'll I'll tell you one more thing. I'll tell you one more thing. The most important thing in my life is the people that I surround myself with because I see so many people in my position and also in other industries and they get torn down all the time because they surround themselves with the wrong people. I constantly reevaluate and look at who I'm surrounding myself with. And if it's the wrong people, I will scoot them out, block them, unfollow them. They will be cut out of my life immediately. Or you really talk to them once every six months instead of six times a day. (laughs) Whatever it is, but having a positive mindset on a daily basis is the most important thing. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. Yes, it's a great piece of advice. I, I was just about to close out the show, but I have one little question that's, okay. that's come up in my mind. And that is, you know, let's imagine that you're not on social media. You're a typical person doing a typical job. You know, I mean, you're, you're on social media for friendship or whatever, sure, family. And, you know, managing the relationships in your life is not too difficult. Managing the people in your life is not too difficult. But when you decide to go, you know, big on social media and other places, all of a sudden mm-hmm. you have magnified, multiplied, you know, the, the interactions sure. that you're having. Sure. And it becomes, it becomes difficult because the, the one sure. hour you used to be able to spend with each of your friends now right. is getting deteriorated instead because you've got to take some of that time and devote it to the 600,000, you know, people that want to hear what you have to say. How do you manage that? Time management is your best friend or your worst enemy. Yeah. You have to be religiously strict with your time. So I made a decision about seven years ago. I wake up at 5 a.m. every day, seven days a week. I start the day every day, unless it's, unless there's a hurricane outside by walking outside and going somewhere to watch the sunrise. While I'm doing that, I'm answering emails, I'm doing conference calls to Thailand and Singapore, Europe. I'm just working, but I'm happy. It's impossible to have a bad day if I start every day like this. And I am religious with my schedule. That's why when you first contacted me, I was so adamant about you putting it into Google and, you know, I only have these times and this and that because I live and die by my calendar. Yep. And you have to. You know, too many people, they're like, oh, yeah, but I need time to decompress and I need this and I need that. I need that. Well, put it in your schedule and, and do it. But they just want to do it at their own free will. That's not the way life works. Not if you want to be 
not if you're building a big brand. Yep. If you want to be a little mom and pop for the rest of your life, it's fine. But don't complain when somebody passes you by and you'd be like, well, I've been doing it for just as long. Why are they getting this opportunity? Well, they put in the work. It's called sweat equity. Mm. I'm all about it, baby. Definitely. Well, we're feeling it. All right, listeners, there you have another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com to claim your discount on the course that excites you the most. And as we conclude, Scott, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status. Returning your worst experience ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Stay positive, go big or go home. Amen. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth and our health. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.